This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. If you've ever looked out on an orchestra audience and seen all the gray hair and empty seats, the next question that may enter your mind is, how will this picture look in 10, 20, or 30 years? And how worried should I be? The answer is plenty worried, according to a new analysis of U.S. arts organizations called Curtains? Question mark, the Future of the Arts in America. Its author is Michael Kaiser, who's had a better perch than most people to assess the field. Kaiser was president of Washington's Kennedy Center for 14 years. Before that, he helped turn around such arts organizations as the Royal Opera, Covent Garden in London, and also American Ballet Theater and Alvin Ailey American Dance. Now he's the head of the DeVos Institute of Arts Management at the University of Maryland. Michael Kaiser, welcome to Conducting Business. Thanks very much. You write that the financial model of American arts organizations, which has always been shaky, has now become unsustainable. Why is that? There's several trends that have affected the arts over the last 10 years, and I think looking forward will have a more dramatic impact. Those include the gradual diminution in subscription levels for arts organizations, the very important aging of our donor base, the lack of arts education in this public schools, which has given us a generation of young people, many of whom are not conversant in the arts, and then two very important factors that are influenced by technology. One is the options for entertainment and online entertainment that are very inexpensive, and then very importantly, the rapid increase in online distribution of the arts, meaning that people can now participate in the arts from their homes, wherever they are, on their iPads, almost free of charge. And this has a dramatic impact on many arts organizations that are struggling to find audience members and donors. We'll pick apart all of that as we go along here, but I first want to ask whether the arts field as a whole recognizes what you think are the severity of its problems and whether there are enough people who are taking steps to avoid the curtains of your book's title. I think most arts organizations are looking solely at their own issues, seeing in many cases reduction in their audience sizes and in others a reduction in their donor bases and are trying to find ways to deal with those, it may be a case of swimming against a tide that is a very, very strong current. You paint a picture of arts groups that are struggling to evolve and reinvent themselves, at least the ones who have recognized the problem. I mentioned symphony orchestras at the top, and you write that they are the least flexible and least visually oriented, so they're losing their audiences more quickly than others. Have any of the established symphony orchestras tackled this problem? I think many are trying. Some have some assets that give them an advantage. For example, the Los Angeles Philharmonic has the Hollywood Bowl that has given it the ability to diversify its portfolio, if you will, to earn revenue on on projects that are not simply classical orchestral concerts. But in most cases, orchestras are facing the challenge of having 100 or so musicians who are on full salary, and they can't reduce the size of that orchestra very easily, unlike a theater company that might one year do much smaller works, smaller scale works, in order to meet financial requirements. What about the orchestras that have had strikes and have then tried to reduce 
the size of the orchestra or the number of weeks in the season? You know, unfortunately, what we see is that when you strike, and even if you win the right to lose a musician or two, that A, doesn't solve your financial challenge, and B, it does affect the quality of your work. And underlying everything I write is a deep desire to see very high-quality arts institutions kept alive because otherwise we're going to see a gradual reduction in, in the excitement, the surprising, the engaging quality of the arts, which plays into the hands of the online competitors. If, if we get less interesting, people will find their entertainment elsewhere. Do orchestras have the ability to deal with the lack of visual? I know some of them have started bringing visual elements into their concerts. Is that helping? It may help in a very modest way for a very small audience. Many orchestras are trying to do works, putting works on screen or bringing other um, dance or other into their performances, but typically it's still a very modest portion of the performances. And, and I don't believe if you surveyed the general public that they would have a perception that symphony orchestras have changed very dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years. Other than using summer venues, outdoor venues like the Hollywood Bowl or in Cincinnati, they also have an outdoor venue down by the river. Have you seen any orchestras that have really done something to improve their model? I think many orchestras are producing some very interesting work, but I can't point to an orchestra that has sustained itself by changing its model in a way that is getting going to sustain it going forward. I, I don't see any orchestra that is radically different from what it was a decade ago. You mentioned that there has been the innovation of sending arts content over the internet and also in movie theaters. Some people say that those expand an arts organization's audience, and then there are others who say that they cannibalize the existing audience. Where do you come down on that? I believe that they cannibalize, but not necessarily the market for that organization, the Metropolitan Opera Movie Theater broadcasts around the world don't necessarily affect attendance at the Met. I do think they affect attendance at other regional opera companies. No statistic that shows that our opera audience is actually larger because of the movie theater broadcasts. And I do suspect that what we're seeing is that people are choosing to go to see a Met movie cast, which are wonderful, for $25.00 rather than to spend $100 at their local regional opera company. And well, can, so I, I can I just ask you? The mid-sized regional organizations starting to be affected by the electronic distribution, and my belief is looking forward 20 years from now, it's going to be exceptionally difficult for the mid-sized regional organization to compete with what will be a barrage of very high-quality online arts. Whenever we raise issues about shrinking audiences here at WQXR. Commenters to our website point to the decline in arts education as a culprit. In your book, you wrote that we don't teach anything else with as scattershot an approach as we now do the arts. It's true. We allow the individual teacher to make the arts purchase decisions in most cases so that if a third grade teacher loves the arts, the children in the class may get to go to a museum or do a class play or, or sing or paint or visit local arts institutions. But those same children, when they go to the fourth grade, if the fourth grade teacher doesn't much care about the arts, they'll get no arts experiences. 
and we wouldn't allow it if our children came home one year and said, we're not learning math this year because my teacher doesn't like it. But we do allow that when it comes to arts education. So what can we do about this to create some standards for arts education? We need to have community-wide standards for arts education, and, and one of the techniques is a project that I created when I was running the Kennedy Center called Any Given Child, which was a project that, that brought together all the arts organizations in a community who were doing arts education, but organized them with the school system so that it was all a coordinated effort and the purchase decision was not let up, left up to the teacher. That program is now in 15 American cities, and those cities have a million children in their school systems, and every child in those school systems will get a systematic arts education at a relatively reasonable cost to the community. So the hope is that we can do more of this in this country. How can that be spread further? One has to work city by city to get mayors and superintendents to buy into the importance of arts education and to be willing to work to bring these programs into their classrooms. But in many cases, still, we don't have organized arts education, and we now have our first generation graduating from college who really had no systematic arts education in their schooling. You had a sort of an Orwellian 2035 vision of each of us sitting at home getting privately delivered content and never going out of the house for any arts event. But is that really true? Don't you think people want a shared experience, like when they go to a ballpark? I think some people will. But as you can tell, they're building ballparks smaller and smaller as well. <laughs> Again, people of my generation absolutely felt that the social aspect of the arts and of sports were critical to our enjoyment. But you only have to sit in an airplane terminal and watch everyone with earphones looking at their iPads to recognize that many younger people want to share their experiences electronically, but don't feel the need to communally share them live. You also wrote about subscriptions and the fact that they now account for about 20% only of ticket buyers, which is down from 60 to 70% three decades ago. How can arts groups go about cultivating more reliable single ticket sales? The single ticket sales have to come, A, from really exciting programming, primarily, and then from strong marketing of those tickets. But the problem is, as arts organizations have gotten more and more scared about the changing world, there's been a subtle pressure or a not-so-subtle pressure in many cases to do, quote, what sells and to do the popular stuff because that's what's going to bring in ticket buyers. But the problem is if everyone does Beethoven's Ninth or everyone does Swan Lake, A, we get very dull, and B, something online, there are many versions of, of Beethoven's Ninth that you can get online, we compete less well with online entertainment and we look less interesting and surprising. The key for success is for arts organizations to be thinking about what is new and exciting and to stop planning their art to a budget, but rather to let their artists dream and to create work that's going to surprise and delight people. So how do arts organizations convince their publics that they want to come see something new and exciting that they don't necessarily recognize? One of the good parts of technology is that technology on the Internet has allowed arts organizations to explain their new works 
in a much more rigorous way than we used to be able to do. When I started in this field 30 years ago, we had direct mail, and we could afford to do a poster or a little newspaper advertisement. But now we actually can, on our websites, give it an awful lot of information about new work and really educate and excite the public before they see something. And I believe that's one of the reasons, and only one, but one why we're seeing a lot more new opera, for example, now than we did 20 years ago. We lived in the second half of the 20th century in this remarkable explosion of arts organizations across America. Before World War II, we didn't have as many. Um, but those of us who lived after World War II in every city expected theater or dance or a symphony or opera. And I am concerned that we're going to start to lose these regional organizations and that many, many people are going to only get a chance to see Swan Lake online versus in, in person, and I find that's a great loss. So what can the regional organizations do to survive? They have to do really amazing work. You know, I think about organizations like the Opera Theater of St. Louis or the uh, Opera Philadelphia, um, organizations that are doing really interesting and dynamic work. They are still modest-scale organizations, but their work is so interesting that I think they compete extremely well with what is available online. I think it's those who try and mimic the Metropolitan Opera that will have the biggest problem trying to compete with the Metropolitan Opera when you can see it in your living room. Two of the things you wrote that really struck a chord with me was, one, making the idea of becoming a donor not seem like something that is up on some Valhalla pinnacle. And you also talked about the need to change the boardroom. You want to address both of those? Sure. I believe it's important to make it fun to be a donor, to make it enjoyable and engaging. And so I work very hard to create accessible points at many different giving levels, but to make it fun. So when I ran the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, um, we had a friends program. It was 50 pounds to be a friend of the Royal Opera House. The key benefit was you got to come to dress rehearsals a couple of times a year. That was very exciting to people. And over time, we built 26,000 friends. That was 1.3 million pounds a year of support from everyday people, not large gifts, but meaningful gifts. And I would say that the vast majority would repeat every year because it was fun for them to participate. Similarly, we have to make being a board member, we have to make sure our boards are engaged and potent. But we also have to realize that the way you get board members most engaged in an arts organization is to allow each one to find a project or projects that matter so much to them that they can help to learn about, that they can help to steward, that they can help to raise resources for and bring their, fr bring their friends to. And when we stop treating a board as one monolithic group of people but realize that each board member has individual passions and interests, that's when we get the most out of our boards. So if you were running the Metropolitan Opera, what would you be doing right now? Probably crying. Um, <laughs> if I were running the Metropolitan Opera right now, I would want to lever off the wonderful work that is happening and off the movie theater broadcasts that are happening and try and find ways to reach those who are in my movie theater audience. For example, I would create a mobile app that enhanced the experience of going to the movie theater, but that also then allowed me to, to communicate directly with the movie theater goers so that I could start to reach them and try and bring them into my institutional family. And with regard to productions and costs at the Met? I think an awful lot is made out of production costs, and yet the actual cost of sets and costumes are not the vast majority of the cost of the institution. 
I think the key issue is how do we start to bring in more people into the organization? If it were me, I would start with the millions of people who are coming to my movie theater broadcasts. Any other potential low-hanging fruit that you see that arts organizations can grab onto? I believe in, again, in thinking about your programming a little bit differently maybe than others. I believe in festivals. I believe in large projects that get people talking and excited. And, and I would love to see the large opera companies do more work that's not just here's 20 operas this year or here's 10 operas this year, but to do some projects that, that break boundaries and, and look a little bigger and more substantial. Michael Kaiser, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Michael Kaiser is the head of the DeVos Institute of Arts Management at the University of Maryland. His new book is Curtains, question mark, the future of the arts in America. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening. This has been Conducting Business.